0: Good morning. Good, morning. Good, morning. Good morning. Let's begin class for prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We ask that your spirit will join us, enlighten our minds, transform our hearts to be like you. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. And uh, one email. Just wanted to let you know that while we were in British Columbia a few weeks ago, we shared the God in your brain DVDs with some family there and a neighbor who broke her leg while we were there. Just heard today that uh, she and her husband looked at them with a sister who was visiting and another friend. They were very excited about them, and the sister said she had to have one to take back to New Brunswick to share with her family there. We had left several DVDs with our family living there, so she was given one to take home. We are sending more DVDs and books up with other family members going to visit for the pastor and some other people. We praise God that we have a way to get these to the people there. Thank you for the box of materials and... Uh, that you sent because they're getting out to people. And then our friends in Australia have uh, created a um, Facebook group down there uh, that they you know share together and visit together with each other. They call it Friends of the Designer. And one of the people uh, posted this week, Hi, fellow designer friends. Isn't it amazing how this message is moving around the world? Praise God. My younger brother in New Zealand has been relieved of his Sabbath school class because he's always talking about the true character of God. Unfortunately, they prefer a God who punishes sinners. I'd like to ask our group to remember him in your prayers. I told him they can stop him from taking the class, but they can't stop him from talking from the pews, and it actually makes it easier for him to expose their wrong ideas about God. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, guys. So there's, uh, just put that in there let you know that our friends around the world are ar- running into similar oppositions that many of us have had trying to share this picture of God. And then I actually re- received snail mail, <laughs> and this uh, came from... Uh, Kansas says, Dear Dr. Jennings and Common Reason staff, you are co- certainly a blessing uh, and blessing many people with your ministry. Thank you so much for sending our family not just the one DVD I requested, but a total of three. I also ordered Dr. Jennings Could It Be This Simple on Amazon. My husband and I uh, learned of your organization in our a Sabbath school class at our church, uh, New Haven SDA over, Overland Park, Kansas. And I've already shared your info with other family members and friends. Uh, I've enclosed a donation to cover your postage and mailing supplies. It's amazing. You can give your materials at no charge. God has obviously blessed you all to be able to help so many with kindest regards again and again. Isn't that nice? Yeah. So we just get these in every week. I bring a few to share with you. I don't share them all because we don't have time, but uh, we are touching lives all over the world. Lesson six in our quarterly, The Teachings of Jesus, and the title this week is How to Be Saved. And the memory text is out of John 3.3. 3. Uh, Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And the context of this idea of being born again, it's connecting it, you notice Christ is connecting being born again with seeing God's kingdom or being part of God's kingdom or, or salvation. Do you notice what Christ did not say? And think that through. Unless one is blank, one cannot see the kingdom of God. What did not go in there? Yeah, you go. Unless you get your sins paid for, you cannot see. Unless you assuage or propitiate the wrath of God, you cannot see. This typical stuff that we are taught that is necessary for salvation, Christ didn't say at all. He said, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Where did Christ put the emphasis of change Part of our in humanity, in the believer. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God didn't need to be changed for us to be saved. We needed to be changed in order to be saved. So he uses this metaphor of being born again. Because why does he use that metaphor? Is there something wrong with our first birth? Yeah. What's wrong with the the way we're born into the world? We're born. Deviant from God's eye and filled with fear and self centeredness. This is how we're born, yes? And so we need to be reborn, which means we need to have fear replaced with trust trust and love, uh, and and love replaces selfishness. So the fear and self centeredness is replaced with trust and love in our hearts. This is the, the rebirth process. The lesson points out the concept of being born again was difficult for Nicodemus to grasp because he was descended from Abraham and thought that that gave him special dispensation or special favor with God, being genetically descended from Abraham. What about today? Are there any ideas like this floating around the world or within Christianity, even within our own culture, that something gives us special dispensation with God? Do you know it's commonly taught today that still genetic descendancy from Abraham gives you special dispensation? If you're a genetic Jew, you've got a special pass. You get a special second chance. There's a special three-and-a-half-year period coming when the church is removed and the Jews will reign on earth again. This is commonly taught just because they're genetically Jewish. The Bible, of course, doesn't teach that. How about, do anybody have the ideas that if you practice certain rituals, if you do this ritual in this way, you get a special dispensation. Or if you worship on a particular day, that gives you a special dispensation. Mm-hmm. Or if you eat the right kind of foods, you get a special dispensation with God. It's this idea built in that we have special dispensation because we are doing all the right things. That gives us special dispensation. We get special favor. We get a special pass. We're the remnant. We're the chosen. Mm-hmm. Third paragraph, it says, Patiently, Jesus explained the spirit, that spiritual transformation is a supernatural work produced by the Holy Spirit. Though we cannot see or understand how it happens, we can perceive the results. We call it conversion, a new life in Christ. There's no doubt, no doubt, that transformation of our characters, the healing of our minds is required, and it it's requires a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in us, that we can't do this on our own. But does that mean we are absent from the process? It's something that's done in us passively. We just sit and wait for it to happen. Or do we have an active role to play? Are we participants in that transformation? Well, Philippians two twelve and 13. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only my, in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Did you notice there's a connect in the same passage? You've got you have obeyed. You continue to work out your salvation, for it is God who is working in you. So, th- so right here, there's a connection between your work and God's work. Do you see it? Mm-hmm. How would you describe that balance? What's the balance between your work and God's work?
1: Cooperation.
0: Cooperation, yes. What is that? How, how, where do you throw the, the weight? How do you make that so you don't feel? You know, traditionally, I will tell you that Christianity has stumbled on this point. And so many people have been burdened with fear. That they're not doing the right thing. They haven't worked hard enough. Uh, they, they're, they're, you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever had that? I, because I'm the only one that grew up with that kind of concern. And it's because they were trying to understand this text under the legal model. And it just does not work. Because we get no, you know, the salvation issue under the legal model is that Christ did everything, pa- everything for our salvation, paid the debt for sins, past, present, and future is all done, and there's no work we can do that can merit any favor. It's all in Christ's merits, and if we accept him, then we're saved. Well, then what do our works have to do with it? Our works don't add anything. How can that, if we're already saved, then and you see the tension that starts building here. Well, yeah, but you still have to do this work, but if I'm doing this work, am I adding to what Christ has done? And they always get in this tension because they're in the wrong model. You need to come back to reality that we are born out of harmony with God's design. And if you think of that model, we need a remedy. Now, Christ came to earth to procure remedy for our situation. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Now, did he accomplish his mission on earth with the aid of any other human being? Or did he do it singly and alone? Mm -hmm. Singly and alone. No work that we can do in our life will add to what Christ did and what Christ achieved. The, and now, in our life personally, does the Holy Spirit apply what Christ achieved to our life? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. So if you think about it in this in this model, does the Holy Spirit then do something in you that you actually cannot do for yourself?
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It helps you repent and confess. I mean, didn't really realize that until the
0: so, so consider a person with an infection who needs an antibiotic. And they take the antibiotic. Did the person develop the antibiotic? No. Does the antibiotic do something inside them they can't do for themselves? It brings a new element, which was not already in the person. But does the person still have a work to do? Even though that antibiotic was created already there waiting, even though the antibiotic, if taken, will, will do something they can't do, do they still have a work to do? What's their work? Ah, oh, they have to take it. They have to partake of it. They have to ingest it. They have to trust they the doctor. They have to trust the doctor too. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. to go to the doctor. Yeah, all those things exactly. So, what is our work in salvation? Well, to partake of Jesus, which means, which exactly means, we have to trust Him. Which means we have to actually spend enough of our mental energies to get to know Him to investigate and understand enough about him in our situation that we decide we actually can trust him. And that, of course, is not something we're doing isolated on our own. The Holy Spirit is working to woo us, to convict us, to lead us, but we've got to engage the process to think, to evaluate, to understand, and ultimately to choose. Yes, I believe that. I believe that. Or, no, I don't believe that. No, uh-uh. Mm-mm. God can't be that good. Uh uh-uh. He can't be. This is what people have to do. They're making their choices, right? We have
1: to stop resisting.
0: Here's how one of the founders of our church put it in Zarevages 671. The Spirit was to be given as a regenerating agent, and without this, the sacrifice of Christ would have been to no avail. The power of evil had been strengthening for centuries, and the submission of men to this satanic captivity was amazing. Sin could be resisted and overcome only through the mighty agency of the third person of the Godhead, who would come with no modified energy, but with the fullness of divine power. It is the spirit that makes effectual what has been wrought out by the world's Redeemer. It is by the spirit that the heart is made pure. Through the spirit, the believer becomes a partaker of the divine nature. Christ has given his spirit as a divine power to overcome all hereditary and cultivated tendencies to evil and to impress his own character upon his church. And I want to read two more. This one's out of Mind Character Personality, 2nd Volume 694. We are laborers together with God. This is the Lord's own wise arrangement. The cooperation of the human will and endeavor with divine energy is the link that binds men up with one another and with God. The apostle says we are laborers together with God. You're God's husbandry. You're God's building. Man is to work with the facilities God has given him. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, he says. And then the last, our high calling, 310. There are two grand forces at work. How many? Think think this through, because I think we often undermine our participatory, active, purposeful role in salvation. There are two grand forces at work in the salvation of the human soul. Notice the human soul here. It's not the human species. Jesus Christ saved the human species by himself. Jesus partook our humanity and carried humanity on to perfection in his own person. And because of Jesus Christ, human race, the species was saved in the very individual being Jesus Christ. And even if no other human being ever is saved, the species human is saved in Jesus Christ. This is about individual soul salvation, your soul, my soul. There are two grand forces at work in the salvation of the human soul. It requires the cooperation of man with the divine agencies, divine influences, and a strong, living, working faith. It is in this way only that the human agent can become a laborer together with God. The Lord does not sanction one of us a blind, stupid credulity. Do you know what credulity means? I looked it up, just to be sure. It means ready willingness to believe with little evidence. And I paused in the middle of this statement. I'm going to go back and read that sentence. But he does not, this is a sentence, the Lord does not sanction in any one of us a blind, stupid willingness to believe with little evidence. Wow. Wow. He doesn't like that. Keep going. He does not dishonor the human understanding, but far from it. He calls for the human will to be brought into connection with the divine will. He calls for the ingenuity of the human mind, the tact, the skill, to be strenuos- strenuously exercised in searching out the truth as it is in Jesus. You are laborers together with God. Mm-hmm. Yes, Linda. The
1: text to support that would be Matthew 11, uh, 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you... And learn from me, for I'm meek, I'm gentle, and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And I envision two two animals in a yoke, the stronger, older, wiser one, and the younger one, one. You
0: know, this is great. This is great. See, a yoke. It's amazing how many people don't know what a yoke is anymore. But a yoke is not a harness. It's not a leash. It's not a collar. A yoke, if you've seen in the movies, it's simply that big heavy piece of wood that sits on the shoulders of two animals together so that they share the weight and they pull together. And Christ says, put my yoke upon you so that we will pull this weight together. I think that's exactly right. Well said. Thank you, Linda. Sunday's lesson, fifth paragraph, says, the fact... That it is necessary to be born again shows without a doubt that the previous birth is insufficient for a spirit, from a spiritual standpoint. The new birth must be a double one, of, of water and of spirit. In light of John the Baptist's ministry, Nicodemus easily understood that to be born of water referred to baptism with water. What he also needed to know was that to be born of the spirit was the renewing of the heart by the Holy Spirit. So water baptism is symbolic of what? Death. 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 And resurrection, dying to that, that self centered, fear based way of living and rising to a trust based, love based way of living. That's what it really is symbolic of. Does the ritual of being baptized change a person? <laughs> it might clean you up if you're dirty. <laughs> um, which is supposed to come first, the work of the Holy Spirit on the heart and mind or baptism by water?
1: The work of the Spirit.
0: You know, I'm glad you realize that. A lot of people think you're not going to be baptized by water. No, it's the spirit that changes, immersing the mind first. Then you symbolically, you say, hey, I've already done this, but I want to show it symbolically in this ritual. Here's a quote out of Signs of the Times, uh, November 15, 1883. This new birth, and and I want you to listen to this, it's quite profound. We're going to get into a little, I think, neuroscience here in a second. It says, this new birth looks mysterious to Nicodemus. He asks, How can these things be? Jesus, bidding him marvel not, uses the wind as an illustration of his meaning. It is heard among the branches of the trees and rustling of the leaves and flowers, yet it is invisible to the eye. And from where it comes and where does it go, no one knows. So it is the experience of everyone born of the Spirit. The mind is an invisible agent of God to produce tangible results. Its influence is powerful, and governs the actions of men. It, if purified from all evil, that's an if, if purified from all evil, it is the motive power of good. Did you, did you hear that? The mind, if purified from evil, is the motive power of good. The regenerating spirit of God taking possession of the mind transforms the life. Wicked thoughts are put away. Evil deeds are renounced. Love, peace, and humility take the place of anger, envy, and strife. That power, which no human eye can see, has created a new being in the image of God. And that reminded me of something we read a while ago. It's not in my notes today, but when our mind is brought into harmony with His mind, our thoughts, His thoughts, we live His life. Remember this? Yeah. Our minds are are, are not our brains. Our minds are not our brains. Our minds operate on the substrate of our brains, like Windows operating system operates on the substrate of a hard drive. But our minds actually change our brains based on what we think, believe, value, and choices we make. There's been a great debate in neuroscience. There's been several theories put through uh, which this mind-brain connection. One is the mind-brain identity theory, which asserts that mental events are simply created by and are identical to brain events. Thus, we can have internal subjective experiences. You know, I feel great, but there's a brain event of increased endorphins and keflins and dopamine that you can measure, and so that's, it's just a brain event happening, and you just kind of feel that way. That's one theory. Another theory is, um, is elimin- eliminativism. eliminativism. That's a hard word. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Uh, It denies mental functions at all and claims that there are only physical brain states. Uh, This view holds that the mental world is an illusion, so your feelings, beliefs, and attitudes are just uh, consequences of brain chemicals uh, going on. There is really no mental state. And then the third is uh, emergent mentalism, which uh, was proposed by Nobel Prize winner Roger Sperry, states that mental events are not possible independent of the brain but the mental processes, such as beliefs, values, feelings, are activities beyond mere physical chemical reactions. And uh, Ellen White wrote in uh, more than 100 years ago, in Second Testimonies 347, The brain nerves which communicate with the entire system are the only medium through which heaven can communicate to man and affect the inmost life. Whatever disturbs the circulation of the electrical currents of the nervous system lessens the strength of the vital powers, and the result is the deadening of the sensibilities of the mind. And so she would be much more in harmony with the Nobel Prize winner. That the mind operates, and this is my view: the mind is analogous to software, and it operates on the substrate of the physical tissue of your brain. But it is not analogous to; it is not uh, uh, the same as your brain. Brain illness can impair the the functioning of the brain, but doesn't determine the mind. It can alter the functioning of the mind, but doesn't determine the mind. And I'll say that again. So a person with brain illness, like multiple sclerosis, seizure disorder, brain tumors, schizophrenia, bipolar, may have an altered hardware structure of their brain, but they can still be kind, honest, faithful, loyal, noble, be repulsed by evil, love the good. In other words, their mind, their character is not determined by their brain. However, their ability to carry out life's activities may be impacted by their brain. They may not have as much energy. They may not concentrate as well. They may not sleep as well. They may not problem solve as well. They may, uh, and, and if you think about this, let's let's see if I can help you with this. I want you to imagine somebody who has got um, <clears throat> cataracts, and they look out, and there's a Great Dane out there, and, and it's one of those kind of tan color Great Danes, but they have cataracts, and so what they see is they see a lion, and they shout, lion, do they have a problem with their mind? <laughs> No, they have a problem with the input coming to their mind. How about let's move it back a little bit. They have retinitis pigmentosa, and they see lion. Do they have a problem with their brain now? Let's move it back a little farther. They have optic neuritis. Now they have the same, same thing. They see lion. Do they have a problem with their mind? Is their mind problematic, or do they have a problem with the data coming to their mind, and their mind is operating on the input that they're getting? Let's move it back a little bit more and put it in the, in, in the brain itself, the, the, uh, the uh, optic cortex, the occipital cortex, and they have a tumor back there. And now they see, lion, do they still have a problem with their mind? No, they don't. And this is this is mental illness. Mental illness can have structural problems with brain, but the mind is not necessarily problematic. Does that make sense? But the mind still may make bad decisions because it's got misperceptions, like that person seeing a lion with cataracts might make a bad decision, because, but their mind is making a good decision with the information they had. So this would be like Andrea Yates, who... Fifteen years ago, however, uh, was having a brain illness in which she believed demons were coming to take her children and take them to hell. And the only way she could protect her children was to send them to heaven. So she drowned all five of her children. You remember that story? Okay. Uh, given the reality in which her mind was working, that was a very sensible solution. She was making a decision to protect her children from demons and from going to hell. But her mind was getting bad information from her brain. Very bad information from her brain. Yes?
1: This can also be applied to suicide. I mean, as a kid growing up, I was always given the impression that if you commit suicide, you pretty much sealed your fate. Um, but we know that a lot of suicide is a, is a mind condition that's, that's not normal also. What would you say?
0: Yeah, I think the suicide question has is, is, is been misrepresented by Christianity for a long time. Um, there will be people that are lost who committed suicide, and there will be people who are saved that committed suicide. I think one of the best examples is Samson. Samson suicided. Oh, but it doesn't count because he's murdering at the same time. (laughs) That makes it okay. If you suicide when you're murdered, suicide bombers are all good then, right? I mean, please. (laughs) You know, so yeah, if people want to pull that out, just pull Samson out on them. (laughs) So my view is that the mind is analogous to software. The brain is analogous to hardware. Yet, so if you think about this, can the software of any computer operate without the hardware? No. Yeah. Think about it. Can they? I mean, everybody know, know enough about computers? It can't. It has to have the hardware. So your mind can't operate without the brain nerves. Does the hardware, though, determine the quality of the software? Not, listen to what I said. Listen to the, the quality of the software, does it determine it? It does not. But can the hardware affect the functioning of the software? Yes. yes, okay, so the brain will not determine the quality of your character, but it could affect the functioning like Andrea yates if she was very if you got very impaired or alzheimer 's dementia, very serious brain disease and your ability and many many of you may know family members or even retired pastors or church elders or other people who are great quite gracious people, and they 'd get demented and in their demented state, they do things like. Curse, swear, uh, try to have sex with people they don't even know. Uh, all this kind of stuff. Why? Because their mind's ability to function is, is impaired because the hardware is degraded. They don't even know anymore. They can't connect the, the, the information they need to make informed decisions. What we choose to believe, what we think, the methods we practice, the values we cherish, all of these things that your mind does will actually change your brain. I'm going to tell you a little something called neurofeedback. Neurofeedback is a form of biofeedback. Now, what is biofeedback? Biofeedback has been around for a long time. It basically takes something like a, um, a galvanometer that, that measures the, the, the uh, electrical you know, conductivity based on sweat on your finger and, and warmth. And pulse rate, so it's taking your biological symptoms of anxiety. When you get anxious, your heart rate goes up, your blood pressure, can, uh, your blood vessels constrict, so you get less blood flow to your fingers, so they get colder. And there's less, and there's more sweating, so you get more electrical conductivity uh, when you're anxious and stressed. And uh, and when you calm down and relax, then you get warmer fingers, you stop sweating, your heart rate slows down. And so basically, just hooking you up to a monitor like this, and then. Um, a person can get feedback from a computer of various kinds, a tone, a, a light, whatever, and your goal is to turn the light or turn the sound or, or make a little Pac-Man eat a little, little whatever. Uh, that's your goal, to make that happen. The only way you can make that happen is by slowing your heart rate and calming yourself down. And so this is typical biofeedback, just getting some information about what your body's doing and training yourself to calm it down. Neurofeedback does the same thing, except instead of using the body signals, it's using brainwaves. It's actually using EEG monitoring, and you can actually see what brainwaves you're having at a particular time. And based on changing your brainwaves, you can make different things happen on the computer. The computer's programmed to react to different brainwaves in different ways. So there was a meta-analysis of 87 studies examining the effectiveness of this neurofeedback on seizure frequency in epileptic patients and found that seizure frequency reduced in 80% of the epileptics, 80% of them undergoing neurofeedback even when anti-seizure medicines did not work. So training the brain waves, the way you think, the brain patterns of thinking, the mind patterns of thinking really, are actually changing brain function. Um, ADHD children tend to have high amounts of theta waves. Theta waves are the waves that any of us can have when you're daydreaming. Everybody, any, anybody ever daydream? When you're daydreaming, your mind's just wandering, you're not focused, those are theta waves. And... ADHD kids have lots of theta waves, which makes sense because their minds are always wandering and they're not focused. Well, they've actually done neurofeedback with uh, uh, multiple studies of neurofeedback. i got the references in the lesson for those who'd like to look this up. And uh, they would put them EEG monitor on and they would have a, like a Pac-Man game and their goal is to make the little Pac-Man eat these little munchy balls, but the only way they can do it is to increase beta waves. Beta waves are when you're ten- attending, focusing, concentrating like this. Okay, And... Um, And the studies showed that the children who did the neurofeedback when compared to the ADHD controls not doing the feedback had not only improved performance and attention and focus and less hyperactivity, but showed enhanced brain activity on brain scans in the areas that attend for attention and focus. And they actually showed enhanced white matter connections in the brain. Uh, So their brain prefrontal cortexes were developing in healthier ways from this type of neurofeedback. Changing the brain wave patterns was actually changing the brain structure. And that was based on their mind choosing to think in new ways. Anybody remember a quote that goes something like this? Everything depends on the right action of the will. See, they're willing to think in certain ways, changing brain frequency, changing brain structure, changing experience. Isn't it interesting? So, our minds are what make us who we are not our brains. And our minds are what God takes to heaven when we die Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and brings back to earth at the second coming to put in a new brain. Anybody uncomfortable with that? I know somebody's got to be uncomfortable with that. Let me read to you out of uh, Six Bible Commentary, page 1093. It was written by Ellen White. Our personal identity is preserved in the resurrection, though not the same particles of matter or material substances went into the grave. The wondrous works of God are a mystery to man. The spirit, comma, the character of man, comma, is returned to God there to be preserved. What goes to God? Your character your individuality, your mind. Keep reading. In the resurrection, every man will have his own character. God in his own time will call forth the dead, giving again the breath of life and bidding the dry bones live. The same form will come forth, but it will be free from disease and every defect. It lives again bearing the same individuality of features so that friend will recognize friend. There is no law of God in nature which shows that God gives back the same identical particles of matter which compose the body before death. God shall give the righteous dead a body that will please him. And then I want to read to you out of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4, put together what this says, that death, our character, our mind, our software goes to God, safe and secure, to be kept there with him in heaven until the resurrection. And listen to what Paul says. Brothers, this is out of uh, 4, verses 13 through 18. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, or grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Him. Did you hear that? Keep, and we keep going, but just get your mind around: right. when He comes, He's bringing with Him those who have fallen asleep. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we, which are alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Wait a second, now I'm truly confused. He's bringing with him those who have fallen asleep, but they're rising out of the ground. After that, we who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to be with the Lord forever. So, how do you understand it? Our individuality, our software is secure with Christ in heaven. But as we already established, the software can do nothing without the hardware. It's safe and secure waiting. And so he brings it and then, by the way, what's the Bible term for where the hardware is where, where the software your individuality is stored in heaven? It's the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb's book of life is a metaphor for a heavenly server in which your they do a data dump that your individuality is safe and secure with Christ in heaven. And when he comes back, he brings whatever that is with him, downloads your individuality into a brand new body, and you live again. It's beautiful. But nothing's happening with your individuality until you get a brain, because software can operate without hardware. Yes?
1: Well, and I was thinking along that line. I just got a different phone, and we had the cloud. So when I turned in my own phone, and the stuff went up to the cloud somewhere, and I got a new phone, and boom, it comes down to the new phone. Brand new phone, no defects and stuff, but now the cloud has brought... My information
0: to the new one. Yeah, and he's coming back in a cloud, isn't he? Isn't that interesting? <laughs> 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 but do, do you see how all the pieces can fit now? It's beautiful. You know how many times there've been in religious groups have argued with monks, amongst religious groups. Our spirit goes to God at death. No, it's in the grave. Uh, it's waiting in the grave. And no, nothing. The dead. Yeah, exactly. And now you see how all the pieces fit. It's all still true, isn't it? The Spirit does go to him, and the dead still don't know anything because there's no, hard, there's no hardware for it to operate on, but it's safe and secure with Christ in heaven, your individuality, your identity. Isn't that cool? Especially for those who were eaten by sharks or their house burned up. They have no identity left. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> No hardware left. Yes. And this
1: gives you a great opening discussion for those who believe that you immediately to go to heaven and are aware and participating in all the things in heaven.
0: Exactly discuss that exactly and i was at the conference on hell uh a few weeks ago if you remember and this question came up and i was in the audience and and i'd already talked to the speaker prior and we talked about something he asked me to share this perspective with the audience and i shared this perspective and it like whoa it's like that they just resonated with this group of evangelicals who had never considered this because their whole um, thoughts were always that you're conscious and awake and floating around somewhere out there um so it really resonated they liked it very much all right well, i so the next question, that we're talking about our mind now. What can you do to develop your mind, to strengthen your mind, to enhance your mind? Exercise and study. Exercise, exercise, yes, yes, all this is good, yes. Lots of, lots of earthly things we can do. I'm going to read to you out of a book called Christian Education. I came across this this week, and I thought, well, it's too good not to share, so I'm going to share this with you. It is a law of the mind. I love laws. And this kind of law, it's a rule that if you don't do it, someone will punish you, or it's a design parameter protocol about how how things work. Which which way do you think this is going to go? Design Design protocol. So it is a law of the mind that it gradually adapts itself to the subjects upon which, which it is trained to dwell. It will become like that which it trains to dwell. If occupied with commonplace matters only, it will become dwarfed and enfeebled. If never required to grapple with difficult problems, it will, after a time, lose, almost lose the power of growth. Not lose, almost lose the power of growth. And I've seen this. I have absolutely seen people who have never exercised their capacity for thinking and reasoning and comprehending, and they become really almost incapable of understanding things. As an educating power, the Bible is without a rival. In the word of God, the mind finds subjects for the deepest thought, the loftiest aspirations. The Bible is the most instructive history that man can possess. It came fresh from the fountain of eternal truth, and a divine hand has preserved its purity through all the ages. It lights up the far distant past where human research seeks vainly to penetrate. In God's word, we behold the power that laid the foundation of the earth and that stretched out the heavens. Here only can we find the history of our race unsullied by human prejudice or or human pride. Here are recorded the struggles, the defeats, and the victories of the greatest man this world has ever known. Here, the great problems of duty and destiny are unfolded. The curtain that separates the visible from the invisible world is lifted, and we behold the conflict of the opposing forces of good and evil, from the first entrance of sin to the final triumph of the righteous and tr- righteousness and truth. And all is and all is but a revelation of the character of God. <coughs> In the reverent contemplation of the truths presented in his word, the mind of the student is brought into communion with the infinite mind. Such a study will not only refine and ennoble the character, but it cannot fail to expand and invigorate the mental powers. Isn't that that just great? And I can tell you from my own experience, I've I've experienced my understanding, my perceptions. Uh, As I told you uh, a while back, you know my view of the Godhead having different roles. Jesus is a member of the Godhead who acts through time in history, creating data points of actual facts in which God has acted with man. And the Holy Spirit comes along and connects those dots like one of those connect the dot books, and it makes the picture fit. And so I've, I've, I've prayed for years that the Holy Spirit will help my mind connect the dots. And the more dots you can connect, folks, the more complex and the more comprehensive your understanding of reality gets. And, and one of the things I've, I've, I've recognized in, struggle, in dealing with people who may see things in a more you know, forensic way is that they have very few dots they've connected. It's like taking a, a jigsaw puzzle of 4,000 pieces and they've taken 300 and made a picture out of it and they left out 4,700 or, or 2,700 pieces. You want to bring all the pieces in as you possibly can assimilate. And the more you do this, your, your neural network expands. Neurobiologically, you will have more and more connections. I think I told you that when Einstein died, he donated his brain to science. And they biopsied his brain, and he had significantly less neurons per square centimeter in his brain than the average person. But he had significantly more neuron-to-neuron connections than the average person. And it's those neuron-to-neuron connections. And how do you get those neuron-to-neuron connections? By demanding your brain comprehend, think, and understand something. Pushing your, your level of understanding beyond what you know. It will require new, new connections be made. And, that, and that's what Einstein did. He studied and he pushed himself to comprehend. Yes?
1: To me, that's what I found or find so disturbing or insidious about the legal... Model or the model that that I grew up with is that you cannot connect the dots. There is no no logic or rationale behind a god of love who will torture his creatures forever. So it's impossible to connect those dots. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. I agree with you. I agree completely. It was absolutely. In fact, it requires of you. Oh, you had a comment? Yes.
1: I heard Doctor Baldwin in a lecture one time say. We can make new neural synapses up into our 90s.
0: That's right. The brain never stops if you're active and healthy. Um, But but it requires of you, and and much of the traditional evangelical theology, that you not think. Because they actually teach you to believe things that are contradictory. They're actually, not just contradictory, mutually exclusive. Meaning, if one is true, that truth makes the other one false. Okay, And yet you're still supposed to believe them both. Like God is a God of love, and all he wants is you to love him, but if you don't love him, he will use his power to kill you. That violates the law of liberty, and love can't exist in an atmosphere where there's coercive pressure being made. Try it on any relationship, coerce the person you're under, threaten to do them bodily harm if they don't love you, and see what happens to love. It can't exist there. Okay, So these things are mutually, and what they say then is they'll then have these theological euphemisms, well, God's ways are higher than my ways. I, I just take that on faith. It must be loving in some way. I just have to believe that's love. I just, I'm just too small-minded and pea-brained to understand what real love looks like. And so we'll burn people to stake because we love them and we want them to... They don't, if they don't give their heart to the Lord and accept our way, well, we'll love them enough to burn them. And this is what they do. You have to shut off thinking. And that damages the mind.
1: So it's not surprising that a lot of people have rejected this God. They exactly. Reject this God. They- the
0: think... I can't tell you how many people I've reached... Because of that very point, they'll come and say, I don't believe in God. And i say, tell me about the God you don't believe in. And I'll say, good for you. I don't believe in him either. And I'll say, you are actually closer to God than had you would you have been had you believed in that lie. And as I said last week, making someone twice the son of hell. See, people who don't know God, they have one barrier to get over. They don't know him. They need to know him. When you teach them a false, distorted view of God, now they have two barriers to get over. They still need to get to know Him, but they have to unlearn all the stuff you've taught them about the false God that they now know. So you've got two barriers for them. They're twice the son of hell. Tuesday's lesson. Let's jump to Tuesday. Uh, first paragraph says, a flourishing spiritual life is possible only by constantly depending on Christ. Jesus used the illustration of the vine to teach us how to accomplish this. I am the vine, you are the branches, said Jesus. In the Old Testament, Israel is depicted as, as a vine and the Lord, that the Lord had planted. But Jesus presents himself as the true vine. And he urges his followers to be united with him. Now this is obviously a metaphor. Jesus is not an actual vine. But every metaphor is only meaningful because there's a reality behind it to which it points. Now I want us to try to penetrate the metaphor and look at the reality of that metaphor. What's the reality the metaphor points to? Well, let's see if this gives any clues. See, if, the, see, see if, if you connect this with the vine, Daniel 7, 9 and 10. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took a seat. His clothing was as white as snow, his hair and his head as white like wool. His throne was flaming like fire, and his wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him, ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. Do you see a connection between that and the vine? It's okay if you don't. We'll push. We'll push further. What about this one? Colossians 1, 15 through 17. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Are you seeing anything that...
1: Well,
0: this is out of a book called... This is actually the last paragraph in a five-book series called The Conflict of the Ages series, the last paragraph in the book called The Great Controversy. On page 678 it says, The great controversy is ended. Sin and sinners are no more. The entire universe is clean. One pulse of harmony and gladness beats to the vast creation. From him who created all flow life and light and gladness. What, what what happens? What's going on in a vine? What's what's going on in a vine? Things are flowing, right? Nurturing. So, from him who created, I flow life and light and gladness throughout the realm of illimitable space, from the minutest atom to the greatest world. All things, animate and inanimate, in their unshadowed beauty and perfect joy, declare that God is love. Yes. Is this suggesting that God is the source of actual physical life energy? And that all this physical life energy is actually flowing from him and out through his entire creation, sustaining it in a constant state. Like a river of fire. Like a river of fire coming out from his throne. Hmm. Like the blood in the body. Like the blood in the body. Not a vine, but but if you ever read some physics string theory, you know, these strings of energy that go out and connect everything. Well, this is out of Education, page 99. The same power that upholds nature is working also in man. The same great laws that guide, like the star and the atom, control human life. The laws that govern the heart's action, regulate, regulating the flow of the current of life of, to the body, are the laws of the mighty intelligence that has the jurisdiction of the soul. From him all life proceeds. Only in harmony with him can be found its true sphere of action. For all the objects of his creation The condition is the same, a life sustained by receiving the life of God, a life exercised in harmony with the Creator's will. To transgress His law, physical, mental, or moral, is to place oneself out of harmony with the universe to introduce discord, anarchy, and ruin. Wow, man, that's profound. Do you you understand what's being said here? Tell me what you hear is being said here. Connect back to the vine. (laughs) Disconnect, you die. You disconnect, you die. Yeah. Are you, search your databases for me. See if you can identify any stories in the inspired record that would relate to this phenomenon of God being the source of life energy, sustenance, and so forth, separation resulting in death, but reuniting with him results in empowering, invigorating, and transformation. Any, any stories in your database from the inspired record that fit this? So you say, oh, that's what's happening there. Somebody said Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve specifically? Eve How about Moses coming down off the mountain after 40 days in God's presence? What's his face doing? Glowing. Why is his face glowing? Is he connected in a closer way, in a more intimate way, with the source, the source? Yes, he was. And what was shown to him in that encounter what were we told that he got a clear vision of?
1: Lord, the Lord, gracious and forgiving.
0: The character, the true character of God. I'm going to connect for you in just a minute here. You're going to see a couple of quotations. i are going to connect. Coming back to the knowledge of God, his true character, opens your mind to be connected to the source of life where the Life, energy of the universe can actually reinvigorate and transform you like Moses was. But that's what's happening. Moses was shown. There's the context. He saw God's character. He comes down. He's connected in a closer way. He's actually radiating an energy now. Yes?
1: I think of uh, an experience of disconnection where, remember, Jesus in John chapter 6 said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life. He gave the life, he gave a symbol of that life to Jesus at the table, the sop. Mm-hmm. And Judas rejected that life, and
0: what did he do he disconnected, yeah disconnected. yeah, and st- how about Stephen? do you remember Stephen as they were stoning him what's it described that his face is doing okay so he he had a vision he looked into heaven, he saw God on his throne, the glory the character, and his face now is starting to radiate like an angel it says isn't this interesting? Adam and Eve after they sin and I'll read they said then then the eyes of both of them are open, and they realize they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves to cover themselves. Um, how is that connected to this? What were they wearing before that moment? Light. 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 Where was that light coming? From God. So suddenly, their sin, and what was the sin? Not trusting God based on? <laughs> Believing a lie. So their knowledge of God became eclipsed. Their ability to see and know God through He is was eclipsed in their mind, and suddenly the connectioning link with the source of all was broken, and now they're naked. The light is gone. I'm he, I came across this in an old journal from 1898, uh, Review and Herald, November 8. Before the fall, not a cloud rested on the no, notice. The connection between mind, God's character, physical light. Before the the fall, not a cloud rested upon the minds of our first parents to obscure the clear perception of the character of God. They were perfectly conformed to the will of God for a covering of beautiful light, the light of God, surrounded them. You see a direct connection again, like Moses, who saw God's character, and suddenly his face is radiating. Here it is, God's character. They didn't have anything clouding it, and they're reading His light. The Lord visited the holy pair and instructed them through the works of his hand. Nature was their lesson book. In the Garden of Eden, the existence of God was demonstrated in the objects of nature that surrounded them. Every tree of the garden spoke to them. The invisible things of God were clearly seen, being understood by the things which were made. But while it is true that God could thus be discerned in nature, this does not favor the assertion that after the fall a perfect knowledge of God was revealed in the natural world. Nature could convey her lessons to man in his innocence, but transgression brought a blight upon nature and intervened between nature and nature's God. Had Adam and Eve never disobeyed their creator, had they remained in the path of perfect rectitude, they could have known and understood God. But when they listened to the voice of the tempter and sinned against God, the light of the garments of heavenly innocence departed from them. And in parting with the garments of innocence, they drew about them the dark robes of ignorance of God. (laughs) The clear and perfect light that had hitherto surrounded them had lighted everything they approached. (laughs) contemplate that. The light of God's presence, the light of his true knowledge, the light of unity with him, the light of understanding his character, nature, methods, principle, lighted everything they approached. In other words, this is how they saw the world. This is how they perceived it. This is the lens through which they understood reality. Communication. But deprived of that heavenly light, the posterity of Adam, which is us, could no longer trace the character of God in his created works. This commentary connects the knowledge of God's character with the actual robes of heavenly light. As, as Exodus 34 was connecting, Moses seeing God's character and now he's radiating heavenly light. Jesus said in John 17 that life eternal is know God. knowing God and Jesus Christ now the Ascent. And I'm going to suggest to you that this change is necessary, this change in the knowledge of God to actually come back into heart and mind, understanding to the true nature and character of God is necessary to be able to live in his presence. That your mind cannot exist without this understanding, without this knowledge of God. You can't exist in his presence. Not just metaphorical light. God wants us to be shining lights into the world. Not just metaphorical lights of truth, which he does, but as we are conformed more and more in mind to him, practice his methods more and more, brain patterns are more and more like him, then we experience a closer connection with him. His presence abides in us more and more. We will actually begin to shine forth. Mm-hmm. Understand your bioelectrical creatures. And connecting to the source of energy in a harmonious way, you will begin to shine forth. You will be a literal light one day, again, as Adam and Eve, as Moses was. One of the found, uh, this was in of Ages three uh, 3.12. The service rendered in sincerity of heart has great recompense. Thy father which sees the secret secret himself shall reward thee openly. That's quoting from scripture. By the life we live through the grace of Christ, the character is formed. The original loveliness begins to be restored to the soul. The attributes of the character of Christ are imparted. The image of the divine begins to shine forth. The faces of men and women who walk and work with God express the peace of of heaven. They are surrounded with the atmosphere of heaven. For these souls, the kingdom of God has begun. And then in this one, speaking of the time right before the second coming, this is the Great Controversy, page 640. The voice of God is heard from heaven, declaring the day and the hour of Jesus' coming and delivering the everlasting covenant to his people. Like peals of loudest thunder, his words roll through the earth. The Israel of God stands listening with their eyes fixed upward. Their countenances are lighted up with his glory and shine as did the face of Moses when he comes down from the Sinai. The wicked cannot look upon them. Do you think this is literal and real, or is this all metaphor? No, And what is the key? And by the way, if you want a Bible text, this is 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. And I'm going to suggest you purifies himself primarily of the lies about God come back into a true knowledge of God, to love his methods, love his motives, love his principles, love his character, to unify your mind with the mind of God. This is prof- Isn't it exciting? I was reading this week. It was a really fun, fun lesson to prepare this week. I'm, I'm going to pause right there, see if there's any questions. Yes?
1: That would explain why there's no night in heaven.
0: Yes, it says in Revelation, there'll be no need for the sun and moon to light it because God's presence will be its light.
1: Also explains why bad things happen in nature. Yes. Because when it's the darkness, the absence of an understanding of God's character distorted nature.
0: And when you put it together, you understand that in this world today, this earth is an artificial bubble of reality. Because the natural reality is a reality in which God has fully unveiled his presence, where the rivers of fire come out, where where Adam and Eve have, have robes of light in the beginning. This is reality as God has it. What we have on earth right now is an artificial bubble where God's grace has suspended and shielded himself from this planet enough that we can still be alive but not consumed. You following me? It's like putting somebody in an artificial respirator. This is an artificial bubble of reality. It says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23 through 25, that God left the sins committed beforehand unpunished, meaning he suspended the consequences for a while. And that's what's happening right now. This is an artificial bubble of reality. And after the thousand years, when he returns, then one day he fully reveals himself, and it's described in Revelation as fire coming down from heaven. And guess who's living in that fire? the righteous. We live forever in it. This isn't harmful. Isaiah 33, 14, and 15, if you need a text for that. Yes? Um,
1: the closer we are to God, the more enlightened we are. And then God is the healer, salvation giver, or healer. So the closer we are to God, does he only heal our mind, or can we expect to bring... To, that his healing will rub on us
0: physically also. Well, ultimately, of course, there's the physical healing with, with the second coming. Um, I think that if we actually are experiencing his divine presence like that, it says in, in Hebrews that the Holy Spirit brings healing to our bodies. Moses was 80 years of age up to 120 years of age, and it says his eye was not dim nor his vital force abated. 120. He still had to, he didn't need. I, I need glasses. He didn't need them. Hey, well. Caleb, same thing. Joshua, same thing. So I do think that when we have this abiding presence, and it says, uh, and there's, a, there's another scripture, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. If you take a plastic bag tied over your head, okay, you're getting dizzy, you're passing out, you're hallucinating, you're deviant from the law of God, law of respiration, all we have to do is take the plastic bag off your head and put you back in harmony with the law, and you will revive ah, the love of the Lord perfect, reviving the soul, just breathing air again, revives us, putting us back in harmony is, 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 is revitalizing to us. So I think there is an aspect as we come closer and closer to God, yet, even so, this is still a mortal body. This is still a mortal body that is subject to death. We will get an immortal body um, that is not subject to death one day. Mm-hmm. And that's the day we're looking forward to. Yes? And
1: Saul, Paul would be an example of the other way around. For example, Moses came into God's presence and glowed and had perfect vision, etc. Saul came into God's presence enough where his vision was totally impaired; he was blinded, physically, and then God, through faith, and his vision came back, but left a certain problem with vision. To uh, I,
0: I think this is great, and because we can have a, a very powerful spiritual lesson here. What was Moses' understanding and attitude towards God when Moses went into God's? physical glory presence? What was his understanding and mindset? Believe. He said, show me your glory. He'd already loved him. He trusted him. He wanted to see more of him, and Moses was transformed. What was Paul's attitude at, on, the, on Saul? On, he was, he was, he was, he, Paul had a lot of distortions in his mind, lies, misunderstandings, misconstructions about God, and thus when he got the flash of truth, it was literally blinding to him.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I might suggest he had a psychosomatic reaction that it wasn't physical light that blinded him. But do you see see the point? I think that uh, that Saul was overwhelmed with truth that blinded him. That's what it was. It wasn't a physical just physical light. It wasn't like um fire or combustion. It was the physical light that Moses had coming from his face as well. And the children of Israel begged for a veil because they couldn't tolerate it. And Paul got such a, uh, a huge dose of it, but then he humbled himself and, and surrendered in love, and, and then he was transformed, and he was able to see visually again. But I, he always retained, a, uh, and he begged God to heal, and begged God to heal, but God said, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do anything. I think that this, you know, I'm going to talk to Paul when we get to heaven. Time of the end. When characters have been set that's there's right there's no more humility there's no more the no more willingness to and they're, they're fully set in the belief of a lie and then what does that light do then right the light of truth the what is
1: a partial, partial dose. dose i mean it it full dose no? full
0: dose yep exactly right fire from within them. is that what it says in scripture fire is kindled from within that's right, but it's the fires of love and truth, and what causes the pain and suffering is not an external infliction; it's unremedied sin in the sinner that the suffering comes from when they come in the presence of unveiled glory of love and truth. Well, we got to go. I think it was a great. Was, the the, the uh, three Hebrews in the fire furnace too; yeah. they were
1: surviving in the fire of God's presence. Yeah. And the Lord were killed.
0: Nice. Our precious heavenly Father, we thank you so much for all that you've shown and done and revealed to us and, and we're just scratching the surface here. We know that what we're thinking about is like just even the tiniest tip on the tip of the iceberg of what you have in store for us. There's so much more, but we want, we see enough that we want to come into your presence. Lord. We want our minds to be unified with your mind, our hearts to be renewed, to be like your hearts. We want to be partaker of the divine nature that Christ has procured for us. We ask for your spirit to be poured out, to enlighten our minds, to connect the dots, to help us see and know you for who you really are, that we can be not only living lives of love, but become those real lights in a world that is so dark with misunderstanding about you. And we can lighten this world and you will come. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.